sleep with the bleeding priest, you sheepish ephus. Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. It's a sweaty December. It's 11 degrees outside. It wasn't last week, it was fucking freezing. It was minus four last week. And if you remember some podcasts from last year, I had some precarious situations with ice. There's this new type of ice happening in Ireland. It's global warming ice. The footpaths and the roads freeze during the night time. And then at about 12 o'clock in the day, they thaw, they briefly thaw, and then they freeze again. So the ice becomes exceptionally slick. And twice last year, I had situations where the only way I could leave my house was by crawling along on my belly. I had to crawl along my driveway on my belly. And I had to start wearing big giant socks on the outsides of my shoes, which made me look like Sonic the Hedgehog. So this year, I've purchased like a pair of snow tyres for my feet. I got them online. They're like these metal, they're like metal socks that I pull over my shoes. And I'm impervious to ice. I can walk on the slickest of ice. I can dance on ice. And these metal shoe socks mean I won't slip. Even last week I was cycling in the ice. Which I shouldn't have done to be honest but I did it. And as I was cycling in the ice, my wheel went from underneath me and then I put my feet down and my metal ice socks protected me. Actually, if you want to get a good a good gift, especially for an elderly person in your life, because, like, when I fall over in the ice, I fall over, but I'm not old enough yet to have a fall. Like, falling over, falling over is when you injure yourself, it's not pleasant, I don't want to fall over. But then you reach a certain age, and you don't fall over, you have a fall. So if you know anyone in your life who may be at risk of having a fall in the ice, get him some, get him these fucking ice grips that you put over your shoes. Now this isn't sponsored or anything, there's loads of them, you just get them online. But that's a great practical gift for anyone who might have a fall in the ice. Actually it could be quite an, an insulting gift. Don't like get these for someone you know who's over the age of fucking 65 and say I got, I got you these ice socks. In case you have a fall. Thank you everybody for the wonderful feedback for last week's podcast. Where I had a chat with the magnificent Johnny Marr. I was fucked from Covid last week. I'm better now. I didn't get that bad a dose. I just happened to be at the peak of it when I was recording last week's podcast. So I was quite fatigued. But I'm fine now. But speaking of musical legends. We also lost the magnificent Shane McGowan. Shane McGowan died and we're all heartbroken in Ireland because we're after losing fucking Shane McGowan and Sinead O'Connor in such a short period of time. Two icons, two legends who represented represented a specific type of Irishness. What I adored about Shane McGowan's writing was how he would imbue the work with references to literature or Irish mythology but he'd do it in a way that wasn't... It wasn't pretentious. He wasn't doing it for the sake of it. You could tell that he genuinely adored and was passionate about... Literature, mythology, knowledge. And he'd be very playful with these things. And he'd democratise these ideas. Through pop music and through punk music. The thing is with art. Any type of art. And the difference I see... 
The difference between art and craft, as I see it. Craft, craft is like just the fruiting body. Craft is a flower, the bit that pokes up above the soil. It's beautiful, we can admire it, it's there in front of us. You can pick it up and hold it in your hand and say, look at this beautiful flower. That's craft. But art is not only the fruiting body, the flower that pokes up above the soil, the bit that we can see and enjoy. Art is the roots, the unseen network of fibres that splay out for fucking metres underneath the soil that we don't see. And those fibres interact with the fibres of other pieces of art, intertextually. The root network of a piece of art, it's not made up of fibres of roots, it's fibres of ideas. It's other people's art. It's what other pieces of art from the past are being referenced here. How does that piece of work nourish this piece of work like it's fertiliser? How does that nourishment contribute to meaning? And when you're appreciating art, you don't have to look at what's underneath the soil. You don't have to look at those roots and how those roots connect to the roots of other pieces of art. You don't have to if you don't want to. You can just enjoy the fruiting body, the flower that pokes up above the earth. You can admire its colour, you can smell its lovely smell, you can admire the craft that pokes up, the aesthetics of it. But the smell of that flower and the colours of its petals and the vibrancy of its leaves, it's fucking fed. It's fed by the root structure underneath the soil that you don't see. And when you pluck it, it's beautiful for a little bit but then it dies. Then it's just craft. And Shane McGowan really understood this with his art. One of my favourite songs from Shane McGowan, from his band The Pogues, would be a song called The Sick Bed of Cullen. When you hear the song The Sick Bed of Cullen, it sounds like a fucking drinking song. It is a drinking song. It's a party song. When that comes on in the pub, you want to order another pint. It is pure and utter fun. It makes you want to dance. It makes you want to shout. It makes you want to have crack. There's a glass of punch below your feet and an angel at your head. There's devils on each side of you with bottles in their hands. You need one more drop of poison and you'll dream of foreign lands. When you pissed yourself in Frankfurt and got sift down in Cologne and you heard the rattling death trains as you lay there all alone. Frank Ryan bought you whiskey in a brothel in Madrid and you decked some fucking black shirt who was cursing all the yids. At the sick bed of Cucullin, we'll kneel and say a prayer, but the ghosts are rattling at the door and the devil's in the chair. And in the Euston Tavern, you screamed it was your shout, but they wouldn't give you service, so you kicked the windows out. They took you out into the street, kicked you in the brains, so you walked back in through a bolted door and did it all again. At the sick bed of Cucullin, we'll kneel and say a prayer. And when you hear that song, it's so fast, it's done in an Irish trad reel. And it's a song about drinking. It's a song about going on a fucking mad one all around the world. Drinking, drinking, drinking. Boxing fascists into the face. Getting kicked out of pubs. Going back in. And you keep at it and you keep at it. And on a surface level, the flower, the fruiting body of that art that pokes above the ground, on a surface level, you can enjoy that flower and smell, smell its lovely smell and admire its petals. And you can enjoy it simply as just... A fucking, a fun drinking song. Let's have another pint and go mad. You can do that if you like. And you can leave it at that if you like. You can enjoy the craft of that. But then if you want to dig deeper, 
and get your hands into the sods of the art and look at the roots of the song and what other pieces of art it references and the intertextuality and you look for your little clues such as the name of the song The Sick Bed of Coo Cullen and now you're looking at Irish mythology now you're looking at oral mythology that's thousands of years old and you're asking who was Coo Cullen and what happened on the sick bed of Coo Cullen and Coo Cullen was a heroic figure in Irish mythology he was a warrior but he was more than a warrior he was a warrior that was so much of a warrior that when you read Irish mythology and how he's described he's described through complete hyperbole complete exaggeration Cucullin is described with lies exaggerated lies that are so extreme you can't visualise him and Cucullin died in battle Cucullin didn't have a sick bed he died in battle but again within this theme of hyperbole exaggerated lies that are so extreme Cucullin didn't die a normal death he was on the battlefield and was wounded to the point that he was ready to lie down but Cucullin wouldn't let himself lie down instead he found an ancient standing stone and you can see this exact standing stone it's called Clock Far More it's up in Dundalk it's a 2000 year old stone that pokes up out of the ground about 20 feet high I think it has ancient inscriptions on it and archaeologists have found like spears and swords and shit around the area so it appears to be a stone in an ancient battlefield and the myth of Cucullin is that when he was dying in battle rather than lay down he tied himself to this stone and faced his enemies and as his enemies came towards him as he was dying he kept fighting them off with his sword and they couldn't beat him even though he was dying he kept fighting and fighting and only finally died when a raven the goddess Marigan landed on his shoulder. So there you have an oral myth. The story of Cucullin's death could be thousands of years old. Would have been written down in the 500s, 500 AD by monks. And you have Shane McGowan's work referencing this. These are the roots to this flower that we listen to in the pub. And what it's about really is the terror, the battle of alcoholism, the battle of drink. The sickbed of Cucullin in the Pog song is a hangover. At the sickbed of Cucullin we'll kneel and say a prayer. Getting sick into the jacks. And what, what Shane McGowan is doing there is he's using the ancient Irish mythology, this, this vision, this image of the hero Cucullin, this icon of Irish masculinity, this icon who was addicted to battle effectively, whose body would morph in a frenzy whenever he entered battle fighting off his enemies and Shane McGowan is contrasting that with with alcohol contrasting it with the joy and fun of getting absolutely fucking mouldy and going mad and knowing that it's killing you knowing that it's wounding you and instead of lying down and giving up with your wounds open from the drink and puking into the bowl puking up blood doing horrendous painful damage to yourself you still tie yourself to the stone and you do it again tomorrow night and that's what I love about Shane McGowan's work that's what I love about the Pogues about that song The Sick Bed of Cucullin and if you're thinking ah blind boy you're digging too deep I'm not I'm digging deep because I'm a botanist I grow flowers 
I'm interested in the roots. I need to know what fertilizer Shane McGowan is using to grow such beautiful flowers. But what makes the, the art so good is you don't have to do that if you don't want to. You can just admire the flower, bask in the aesthetics of the fruiting body. But the reason the flower is so beautiful, the reason Shane McGowan is a legend, the reason that his work is great art is because that root network is there and because that fertilizer is there. You don't have to see it, you don't have to feel it, but the nourishment is there and you appreciate it through the fruiting body. Contrast that with just any old drinking song. There's thousands. Go over to Boston, go into some Irish pub, find some band who are trying to sound like the Pogues and are just writing songs about drinking whiskey and drinking Guinness and it sounds the same and it has a similar energy and what you have there is it's a bouquet of flowers it's a flower that's been taken out of the soil or it's a plastic flower it's the fruiting body disconnected from the roots and the nourishment and you don't have to be an artist to tell you just know the glow isn't there and that for me is the difference between what we consider art and skilled craft something artisanal and I'm not placing one above the other I'm just saying with art there's way more digging to be done with art there's a lot more ideas to dig through if that's what turns you on if that's what you're curious about and a song that explores this exact theme that I'm speaking about is a song called In Bloom by Nirvana because again Kurt Cobain Nirvana is art it's real art you can go into Kurt Cobain's lyrics you can go into the music and you'll find intertextuality there there's real strong root structure to Nirvana's music and it's connected with other pieces of art and it's very well nourished with ideas and curiosity and respect and love for other art and art that has gone before and then the fruiting body of that the flower is incredibly beautiful it has an otherworldly glow and that's why we're still talking about Nirvana listen to Nirvana's song Scentless Apprentice wonderful fucking song absolute banger listen to it like that by itself if you like or also read the book Perfume by Patrick Suskind which inspired the lyrics. Now you're going through the root structure and you come away with a, a deeper understanding of the fruiting body. But Nirvana's song In Bloom it's Kurt Cobain kind of singing about they got all these new fans as Nirvana got bigger they got all these new fans who didn't really care about the art of what Nirvana were doing and the chorus of In Bloom is He's the one who likes all our pretty songs and he likes to sing along and he likes to shoot his gun but he don't know what it means. And I think what Kurt Cobain was talking about there is their actual shows were getting ruined. I think what was happening is that because Nirvana's music was so loud and heavy and aggressive these arsehole fans were showing up who were wrecking the buzz for everybody. Because in the inside of Nirvana's album there's a quote that Kurt Cobain wrote that said if you're a sexist, racist, homophobe or basically an asshole, don't buy this CD. I don't care if you like me, I hate you. So he wouldn't have written that if it wasn't becoming a problem. So Kurt Cobain is saying, don't come to this garden and pick these flowers and just admire them as pretty little flowers that you can smell and enjoy. They belong in the ground, connected to the roots, where they're nourished by ideas and intertextuality with other work. This is art, it's not craft. If you want to go and hear some band just be loud and scream, then go to their gig. But you're not here, please, because we're trying to do something different. Please respect this because you're being sexist, racist and homophobic to all the fans at our gigs. 
and I don't know is that the reason they call the song In Bloom or why throughout the lyrics you have themes of nature and fruit but it's a song about exactly what I'm speaking about and it ties in nicely with the metaphor of understanding art as a flower that's grown from the ground. But for this week's podcast I want to I want to read you a short story from my new book Topographia Hibernica. The story's called I'll Give You Barcelona and with this story I was curious about masculinity. I was curious about how masculinity as a social construct is often defined by rage and anger and when I say curious there I never say this story is about masculinity. I tend not to create anything with a definite purpose. What I prefer is to create something with a curiosity around certain themes so that when I'm actually writing I'm being playful and I'm finding out as I go along. But one of the reasons I want to read this story to you this week it's because I was thinking about Shane McGowan. It's because of Shane McGowan's death and thinking about the sick bed of Cullen, that song. Because the myth of Cullen is something I was researching and being curious about when I was writing this story. In particular, Cullen as an icon of Irish masculinity. The myth of Cullen comes from the Ulster cycle of Irish mythology. Could be a couple of thousand years old, like I said. Was written down by monks from the 500s onwards. But then the other thing with Irish mythology, in particular heroic Irish mythology, so I mean Cúchulainn, or the Fenian cycle of Irish mythology with Fionn McCool, this Irish mythology was kind of retranslated and rewritten in the late 1800s by Irish revolutionaries, deliberately to instill a sense of like violent masculinity in Irish men. Ireland was trying to break free of the colonial shackles of Britain and 800 years of colonisation. And in the late 1800s, with like the Gaelic League, certain figures brought back these stories of Cullen as this relentless warrior, this warrior who never gives up, this warrior who will die on the battlefield and continue fighting, to instil a sense of violent masculinity in young Irish men so that they would go on and become a Fenian, so that they'd join the Irish Republican Brotherhood, or later the Irish Republican Army, to fight British soldiers, even though they would most likely die. A direct example of that for me is one of the families that were involved in translating Irish mythology in the late 1800s were the O'Rahilly family, of which Mancon Magan, who I've had as a guest on this podcast a number of times, He's a descendant of the O'Rahillys. But the O'Rahilly family were very much involved in the ideological side of Irish freedom. And Michael O'Rahilly, also known as the O'Rahilly, he was in the 1916 Rising. And he literally led a rugby charge against British machine guns and died like a suicide mission. His body was torn to bits while he ran towards firing British machine guns. He died on the battlefield, effectively tied to a stone like Cullen, facing the bullets as they ripped him apart. He became the 19th century living ideal of the icon of Irish masculinity as interpreted from the, the myths of Cullen. So I'll go through Cullen's life story 
First, for those who might not be aware, Cúchulainn wasn't real, by the way. He's a mythological hero. He's the central figure of an Irish epic myth called the Tyne, which is like our equivalent of the Iliad or the Odyssey. He was a relentless warrior. Such a ferocious warrior that he was described in the oral tradition using exaggeration in a way that you couldn't possibly even imagine what he looked like. And that's what I love about the Irish oral storytelling tradition. Our use of hyperbole, like I said, hyperbole is extreme exaggeration. Almost lying when you're having fun. But Cucullin, he had a divine birth, a bit like Christ. His dad was a god and his mother couldn't really explain how she got pregnant, a bit like Mary. But she got pregnant and a god told her, that's my son inside new. So she gave birth to a young fella called Satanta. Now as a child, young Satanta, he used to get into fights with other lads, as was normal at the time in in an ancient Irish warrior culture. He used to get into fights with other boys. But the difference was with Satanta, he had this supernatural ability called Reastrad or the warp spasm when young Satanta would get angry and furious his entire body would change he would warp into not quite a monster but the, the physical embodiment of anger something indescribable physically indescribable and when he entered a warp spasm he would kill everything in sight he was unbeatable one day young Satanta went to visit a blacksmith by the name of Colin and Colin had this ferocious dog this hound that was guarding his house and when Satanta went up to Colin's house the dog went mad and attacked Satanta now this dog was ferocious it was an Irish wolfhound no one was beating this dog but young Satanta he had a harley and a slitter a slitter is the ball in the Irish game of hurling. So young Satanta, he hit this slitter, this ball, towards the dog, and it went right down the dog's throat and choked him to death. And then Colin comes out, the blacksmith, and says, What the fuck are you after doing, Satanta? You're after killing my dog, you prick. The fuck are you after doing that for? And then young Satanta says, I'm so sorry the dog attacked me. And then Colin goes, I don't give a fuck. Now I don't have a guard dog. What if people come to try and rob me? What if they try and rob I'm a blacksmith. People could rob my, my iron, my weapons. Who's going to guard me? And then Satanta says, I'll be your guard dog. I'm going to be your guard dog. I killed that dog, so now I'm going to guard that forge. So Colin says, Okay, grand, you're going to be my guard dog now. And then the druid, Cathbad, came along and said, Well, we should change his name. He's not Satanta anymore. Now he's Coo Colin. And Coo Colin means the hound of Colin, the dog of Colin. So as Coo Colin, I'm leaving a lot of shit out now because this is, this is an epic fucking story. It's massive, so I'm leaving a lot of shit out. But as Coo Colin now gets older, he becomes the fucking ferocious warrior, unbeatable. And the reason he's unbeatable is because he can enter warp spasm. Coo Colin can become so angry, so consumed with rage, that his entire body changes and he becomes pure vitriol. Like Ulster is invaded at one point and the men of Ulster are put under a curse whereby they get labour pains. The men of Ulster all get the pains of labour and they can't enter battle and Cú Colin himself 
defends Ulster single-handedly against waves of armies because he enters warp spasm and just can't be beaten. And how warp spasm is described in Irish mythology and the translations of it, and this is what I adore, this is the, the hyperbole you find in foundational Irish literature. Exaggerations that are so surreal you can't possibly envision what it looks like. The first warp spasm seized Cucullin and made him into a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His shanks and his joints, every knuckle and angle and organ from head to foot, shook like a tree in the flood or reed in the stream. His body made a furious twist inside his skin so that his feet and shins and knees switched to the rear and his heels and calves switched to the front. On his head the temple sinews stretched to the nape of his neck, each mighty, immense, measureless knob as big as the head of a month-old child. His face became a red ball. He sucked one eye so deep into his head that a wild crane couldn't pull it out of the depths of his skull. His mouth distorted, his cheek peeled back from his jaws until his gullet appeared. His lungs and liver flapped in his mouth and throat. Malignant mists and sparts of fire flickered red in the vaporous clouds that rose boiling above his head. So fierce was his fury. So that's the description there of Cucullin's warp spasm. This strange monster that he would turn into when he got so angry. And that's Thomas Kinsella's translation from the 1920s. But you're talking about descriptions and imagery there that's thousands of years old. But something that gets left out a bit of Cucullin's rage and anger. Like I said, Cucullin was used as, as this, this icon of Irish masculinity. Allow rage to consume you in battle so that you're fearless and you die for your country. That's how Cucullin was interpreted in the 1800s to inspire Irish men. Just fucking die. Fight and die. But what gets left out is the cost of that rage. The reason I'm fascinated by Cucullin's warp spasms is for me it's a description of anger an anger so blinding that it takes away all rationality if a person insults you or if you if your self-esteem is hurt in any way and you feel rage your face feels red you grit your teeth you clench your fists what you're dealing with there is, is fight or flight. An incredibly extreme emotional response to a threat. Now if you're in battle, if you're literally being attacked and you have to fight for your life, then that emotional response might be useful for you in the moment. But humans are imperfect. And we experience rage. I've experienced rage many times. And it's never been because I was on the battlefield. <laughs> and rage and toxic anger are not useful. If your feelings are hurt, or if someone slights you in some way, or if your sense of identity is threatened. Rage and toxic anger are no good to you. Rage and toxic anger will have you saying something hurtful to a person that you love. Men kill women because of rage and toxic anger. Men have a couple of pints and have an argument after a pub and hit a person because of rage and toxic anger and kill them with one punch and ruin two lives. Rage and toxic anger are very rarely useful. Yet we often define masculinity by this rage and toxic anger. 
we position it as something to be excused and accepted rather than examined or something for us to accept responsibility for or take ownership of like I strive for kind of self-compassion and self-love so that I can achieve emotional regulation and calmness so that I can examine my anger critically like an adult so that it doesn't become a rage that drives my behaviour in an unhelpful and irrational direction and crucial to that process is I have to I have to deconstruct the narrative that society has told me that boys will be boys that violent anger is an appropriate way for a male to respond because that's just that's just how men are we've got so much testosterone we're just you know that's how we're supposed to be you're being a man if you get angry I reject that because I know that I can still acknowledge the feeling of anger and respond to it with compassion and be assertive rather than being rageful but in the original Irish mythology the bit that gets kind of left out is Cú Colin's rage and anger his warp spasm causes him to kill his own son by accident when Cú Colin spent time in Scotland training to be a warrior he got a woman pregnant called Aoife and then he left and went back to Ireland before the child was born his son's name was Conla and when Conla was 8 years old he decides I'm going to go to Ireland and try and find my father Cú Colin I'm going to find my dad so Conla arrives to Cú Colin's gaff but Cú Colin like the dog that he had killed in his childhood Cú Colin just sees this 8 year old as an intruder and he doesn't ask questions he doesn't ask who are you what's the crack why are you here Cú Colin gets the rage gets the warp spasm goes into a battle frenzy and is now fighting his 8 year old son but he doesn't know it's his son but his son is able to hold his own because he's Cú Colin's son he's able to fucking battle so Cú Colin now is fighting this child going what the fuck is going on here why is an 8 year old able to try and bait me but the rage and the toxic anger takes over and Cú Colin enters warp spasm and now murders the boy he beats him in battle and kills him and then afterwards learns that was your son he killed his own son and that's a very important part of the story of Cú Colin because what you have there those are the consequences of that rage in the original mythology you have an examination of the cost of rage and the cost of toxic anger when you get that angry you're a fucking idiot you're an idiot you're not calm you're not thinking about things critically you punch first you ask questions later and now Cook Collins after killing his own little son and in Cook Collins case he becomes the dog he becomes the Coo Colin the hound of Colin you see the dog is an animal the dog is acting on instinct it's a guard dog if a guard dog attacks then we're not going to be too judgmental on a fucking animal but a human being a human being has the capacity to be calm and think critically and Coo Colin didn't do that he behaved like the dog and killed his own child and that to me that's the depth of Cú Colin's story in the original Irish mythology that's the bit that lets that's the bit that speaks about the human condition you take that out and you've just got a mad cunt who gets angry and kills everyone and dies for his country you get a type of nationalistic propaganda but you bring back in the sadness of he got so angry he killed his own kid 
and now it doesn't matter how heroic he is in battle. It doesn't matter how much of a legend he is. It doesn't matter how hard he is. It doesn't matter what his reputation is. He's just murdered his little boy. But that telling of the story, that's not convenient when, in the 1880s, you're trying to raise a generation of Fenian warriors to go and fight the Brits. All you want to hear about there is the hero Cucullin, who didn't think about battle, who didn't think about fighting. He just let his rage take over and die if he must on the battlefield. And if you do die, you fucking die standing. So before I read you this short story, I'll give you Barcelona. I'm going to have a little ocarina pause so that it's uninterrupted. I'm in my office, I don't have my ocarina. What I do have is a book. Um, I've got a book that was actually given to me by Johnny Marr. And it's called On the Aesthetic Education of Man by Friedrich Schiller. I haven't had a chance to read it yet but Johnny said it's fantastic. It's a book from the 18th century about the role of art in society. So I'm going to hit myself into the head with this. Okay, here is the me hitting myself into the head with the On the Aesthetic Education of Man by Friedrich Schiller pause. There's a nice snap to that. Not very pleasant. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Alright, that was a pause. You'd have heard an advert for something there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you entertainment, mirth, merriment, distraction, what merriment? Made me think of merriments. Where the fuck did they go? Haven't had a merriment in a long time. I think they might be dead. Who killed the merriment? If this podcast brings you merriments, then consider paying me for my work because this is my full-time job. This is how I rent out my office. It's how I pay my bills. It's how I earn a living. Um, If you're enjoying this podcast, just please consider paying me for that work. All I'm looking for is the price of pint. The price of pint. The price of a pint or a cup of coffee. Once a month, that's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. You can listen to the podcast for free. I keep it in such a way that Everybody gets the exact same podcast, all right? Whether you pay for it or not, everyone gets the same podcast. But if you can't afford to pay for it, that's grand. Because the person who can afford is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast. 
I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast. Just some gigs, 2024, January 22nd and 23rd. I'm in Vicker Street, Dublin. Come along to those gigs. They're going to be fantastic. I love my Vicker Streets. Then I'm over in Oslo on the 5th of February, Oslo in Norway. That gig is going to be cracking. It's my first gig in Norway. Berlin, two gigs in Berlin. One sold out, the other one is almost sold out. That's on the 8th of February. March, I'm in Derry in the Millennium Forum. And then, just announcing this fucking week, and on sale this Friday, this podcast is after going massive in England, Scotland and Wales the past six months. I don't know what did it, but it's gone really, really big over there. People couldn't get tickets for my tour there in November. Um, so I'm doing. I'm, I'm announcing a new UK tour for April, and I'm going to go to some new places. I'm going to go to Newcastle, Glasgow, Nottingham, Cardiff, Brighton, Cambridge, Bristol, and then on the first of May, London. My biggest London show yet in in the Hammersmith Apollo. So I don't know what the fuck's going on, but the cracking tens are really enjoying this podcast and are crying out for gigs so there's a a new UK tour in April there and the tickets are going to be on sale this Friday I'll probably announce it on Instagram I'd imagine Blind by Boat Club on Instagram so I'm going to read you now a short story a short story called I'll Give You Barcelona from my collection Topographia Hibernica Uh, this is from the audio book so also there's a, a custom kind of soundscape that I composed as well And on the topic of art, you know, the first half of this podcast, I was speaking about how art is is a flower. The fruiting body is like a flower that grows up from the earth. But then you have the root network, which is intertextual and relates to all other pieces of art that influence that flower and then nourish its growth. This short story is about masculinity in 2023. It's about two lads in a gym in Limerick. It's a comedy. There were parts I differently record in the... recording this episode because I kept laughing over some of the lines but when I was writing this I wasn't consciously aware of the Ku Cullen connection I only realised that after I'd written it in fact if I'd have gone at this story and said alright I'm going to write a short story about a gym in Limerick but there's going to be elements of the mythology of Ku Cullen involved if I'd have done that it probably would have it would have come out quite contrived and forced and it might not have worked. But it's about what are you fertilising the earth with? What are you feeding your unconscious mind with? And when you create any piece of art, painting, music, writing, whatever the fuck you're doing, if you're genuinely engaging with other art, with other people's art or ideas, whatever it is you're so passionate about that makes you feel really relaxed, that will feed your unconscious mind. And then when you sit down and enter flow state those ideas will bubble up without you even knowing it's like if you watch a fucking a film and then you go to bed and you have a dream and elements of that film pop up in your own dream creativity is like that too whatever you feed your unconscious mind with whatever you relax with and you get passionate about it will find its way up in your art if it genuinely connects with you you don't even have to worry about it it'll just happen And then afterwards you go, oh fuck, oh okay, that's what that is. 
And then once you have that awareness, you can go back to the edit and you can edit it with that new awareness in mind. So this short story is called I'll Give You Barcelona and I hope you enjoy it. I'll Give You Barcelona. I do this thing in the gym, in the gym locker room, not just me. Men do this thing in the gym locker room. We try to be as naked as possible at all times. To show other men how much of a confident alpha male you are. You'll see the opposite with the younger men. Less sure of themselves. Trainee men. Lads of about 18 or 19. They always have their towels around their tackle. Swimming shorts in the shower too. Which is a real taboo. I don't take too much heed of it. They're allowed to be like that. They're not silverbacks yet. In fact, it's a show of respect to us. But a grown man in swimming shorts. Like me. Well into my forties. You'd better be heading to the pool immediately after your shower. Because swimming shorts make the other men think. Are you saying I want to be looking at your dick? Why are you hiding from me like I want to see it? Show it to me so I can ignore it. So we get violently naked. It's a staring contest with no staring. And if my deodorant falls on the tiles. I'm bending over. I'm perching down and picking it up. And you might have to deal with my asshole. And that's just how it is. Because I'm not about to be alpha male by these other cunts. So there's my fucking langer too while we're here. Dangling from behind. Live with it. And the more alpha male a man is. The more likely he is to draw his leg up on a bench. And towel his bars in front of the other men. He slide the towel through his crack and make a banister out of himself. And he might shout and scream about a holiday. Or a dead relative while he's doing it. So you have to pay attention to him. You counter this by mastering the art of looking through his nudity. You never look away, fuck me. You never ever turn away ye. You'd have to kill yourself. And you can hear the wet smacks of his parted arse if he's near you. Double points to him if you taste the spice of his taint in the humid air. Silent nudity is almost as bad as swimming shorts in the shower. Your body must be made the centre of attention while other men force themselves to watch everything around you. Draw them into your equipment until their bodies are orbiting you. Be the sunshine made of beige flesh. That's real leadership. And did you know that Bruce Lee was so healthy his heart burst? When I've had a good day of fares in the taxi, when the arse would feel like someone else's from sitting down, I'll hit the gym to get the blood pumping around my veins again. I get stuck into the lift and I does. I take it seriously and I take my health seriously because I'm not hitting 50 and turning into one of these cunts who looks like a continental quilt. Nothing distracts me from lifting. But recently, I started getting into them podcasts while I'm lifting. I heard the younger lads talking about them and I said I'd give them a go. I was listening to a podcast about cheetahs last week while I was tearing through the last reps of the fourth set on the bench. They'd been doing progressive overload. It's where you stack the weights on the bar, do a few sets, then add more weight. You keep adding to it until you can't lift anymore. It fatigues the muscles and triggers your glycogen stores. It takes a long time before you see the results. But Rome was a building a day and I was flattening my back. 
more than 120 kgs above my eyes, when the fella in my ears says, Men come from the plains of Africa. That's where our brains still think we are. It kicked me into the mind. I held the bar above my face for too long. I felt the triceps on my right arm lock and the bar came down on my Adam's apple, trapped under it I was. I didn't even try to push it off. I was too focused on the podcast. The iron of the barbell was so close to my nose that it smelt like the blood of an enemy. If I was on my own I'd be dead, choked out. But Kazi and Pavel came over and lifted the bar off my neck. And they had big pink faces and the pair of them veiny heads like boners screaming at me. With spit coming out and all, they looked frightened. That meant that they could smell my testosterone. Jackie, Jackie, are you alright? I think they said. Because I couldn't hear them through the big noise cancelling headphones. And I didn't want to hear them either. Shut up, I'm listening to cheetahs, I said. Even though I wasn't. I was only listening to a fella talking about cheetahs, but that doesn't matter. I came up off the bench, leaving a sweat stain in the shape of myself that some other prick could wipe off. Because Jackie Kinsley never had to wipe down no benches in here. Kazi and Pavel had the look of lads who expected a thank you. I alpha mailed them both by turning my back and walking over to the quieter area near the women's fitness bikes. But I swear though, this podcast, lads, this podcast had my undivided attention. I was staring myself out of it in the gym mirror, but I wasn't looking at me. I was looking through me. I was looking at my thoughts, and my right tricep was spasming like a drowning rat. It was an interview with an ex-Navy SEAL called Corey Shunt, who lived with cheetahs in Africa. Every day, he'd go down to the tree where the cheetah pack were. And every day, they'd growl at him and show their teeth until one day, he drugged a meerkat and bit into its neck in front of him. Freaked them all out. The cheetah pack accepted him as one of their own. They respected him and they feared him. He hacked their minds. He hacked their minds. He stayed with the lanky fuckers for a full year and all. And then he flew home to Miami and wrote a book about how we should all be living like cheetahs. And that's why he was being interviewed on this podcast. Humans have it wrong, he said, with our office jobs and our polar necks and our hot dinners. Instead, we should eat one giant raw meal a week, offal, cartilage, bone marrow, and spend the rest of the week running and lifting like we hunted it ourselves. This hacks our minds into thinking that we are cheetahs, and that we live in the wild outside of society. He said it can get rid of stress, obliterate worries, make you afraid of nothing. Most importantly, you'll gain the respect of other men. Back to our wild state. Before all of this shit that we have now, a big empty cheetah's head on you, living in the moment and nowhere else like a fucking Buddhist monk and spade. This was powerful information. The women's area smelled like a leaky attic, and there were no women. I grabbed a pair of 40kg dumbbells in each fist and burst into five sets of Bulgarian split squats with my left foot up in a yoga ball. It works the hamstrings, it feels like 20 bouncers headbutting you into the ass, and it'll burn the palms of your hands too, even with weightlifting gloves on. But you won't see results if you don't feel the pain, 
as the man says, a bird in the hands is worth chewing a bush. And Corey Shunt had my mind scooting off in all sorts of directions, imagining how I was going to eat my way through an entire butchered calf in one week. Where would I get one? Does raw meat not have you shitting through the eye of a needle? I checked my form in the mirror. It was perfect. My knee bent at a 90 degree angle to my chest and my glute was parked out to maximise the contraction. I was doing diaphragmatic breathing with each rep to oxygenate my blood too. I read about it off the back of a creatine tub. Pure loud breathing with sucky lips and bits of spit coming out on the exhale. (laughs) This and the podcast had me thinking very deep thoughts. Like, my spit spat on my reflection in the mirror, and in each bit of spit there was another reflection of me. Loads of different types of me in the spit mirrors. Tiny little round globs. Up and down, up and down. I watched myself squatting in the mirror spit, moving all wanky, like I was a long streak of bubblegum being stretched out of a child's teeth. I was all, what did they call it, distortured. My body was all distortured and elastic in the bits of spit and it reminded me of the dream about the dog. Sometimes I have a dream about peeling all the skin off my body and wrapping it around the dog and then the dog attacks a lot of strangers in a supermarket but it's a dog wrapped in my skin so it looks like a wonky version of me and I see all the people in the supermarket panicking in different directions and, and they're down below because I'm watching from the roof of a multi-storey car park with no skin on, all red like a fella in the medical book, and the dog, and the dog who's wearing my skin looks up at me, with my face over the dog's face, and he wants to eat the meat version of me, but I'm not afraid, I want to fuck the dog's mouth, and I wake up in an awful state. On the last set of the Bulgarian squats, I didn't give myself any rep limit. I kept going until failure. When you do that, it trains the highest possible number of your muscle fibres. It felt like the passion of Christ all the way up the back of my knee as far as my hole. But I tolerated the agony of it when Corey Shunt started calling bullshit on the idea of the alpha male. A social construct, he said it was. I felt like this podcast was made for me and me alone. I was Moses talking to the mad bush, listening to Corey Shunt tell me that the alpha male was based on faulty evidence about packs of wolves in zoos. Society is our zoo. We trap ourselves with polar necks and office jobs. This notion of a supreme pack leader who fights his way to dominance to lead all the other wolves, it's lies. That only happens in captivity with mentally ill wolves. There's no such thing as an alpha wolf in the wild, he said. And then he went down, flooring me with his knowledge. We should forget about wolves altogether. Stop talking about wolves. Shut up about them. They're all dead for a reason. And the smart ones have turned into dogs. Forget about being an alpha male too. Be like a cheetah. Cheetahs don't have a pack leader. There's no alpha in a cheetah pack because all the males are sigmas. They're out running around in the wild. They come and go as they please. Be a Sigma male. A Sigma male can have it all. Have your power, your freedom, your pick of the gant. 
but do it independently, don't, don't be concerning yourself with dominating other men. Strike on your own terms and avoid open conflict or posturing. Transcend status and occupy a higher spectrum of dominance, he said. That's the cheetah mindset. This fellow was smart and I was agreeing with him. My head, my head nearly fell off. I was nodding so much. Sure, how could we all be the alpha male? Wouldn't it end in bloodshed? We'd all be dead by now. Where the fuck was Corey Shunt when I was in my twenties? I needed to hear this back then. Sigma Cheetah mindset all the way. This was gonna be my new thing. I'd gone a bit overboard with the final reps of the Bulgarian squats and I could feel a cramp coming up in my hamstring. you never want a cramp in your hamstring in the gym. Because then you have to do a stretch that makes you look like a woman getting ridden on a snooker table at a hen party. To avoid that, you walk away from the squat and imagine that you're a small baby with a dirty nappy instead. Waddle around a bit. Make your knees rubbery so the muscle fibres can braid. Fair enough, it looks a bit silly. But then you take the attention away from your legs by swinging your arms in circles and talking pure loud. Distract anyone who's looking. Move their eyes up from your legs towards your torso and head. And it doesn't matter what you're talking about either. So I started talking about cheetahs. I swung my arms like a windmill and looked at a fella doing pull-ups. Stared right into his eyes and I shouted, Big long yellow cunts from Africa with sharp teeth. I said it like a question too. I don't know why I did but your man didn't finish his set anyway. He'd his mouth open like he wanted to talk but couldn't find the words. He got pure nervous. Because I had just dominated him. I asked myself, was that the smartest move? Would a Sigma Cheetah have done that? Or am I naturally just too much of an alpha wolf? The journey of taming myself had begun. At this point of the podcast, I'd left the gym floor and I headed for the changing rooms and decided I was going to have a swim inside in the Pyrrhal to cool down my muscles after the workout. I have a ritual. The second I cross the threshold of the changing room, I immediately get nude. No exceptions. Corey Shunt was now talking about how to boil an egg by shouting at it, and I was giving his words my full undivided attention, which was a mistake in hindsight. I should have put the phone in the locker and taken the big headphones off when I stripped, because my body was going to the pole, but my mind was heading for the shower. I forgot to put on my swimming shorts and I walked cock first into the swimming pool which wasn't alpha male or confident or independent or nothing. It's a fucking sex crime. Luckily, it was quiet at 11am so there was only one other person in the pool. But that person was Purple Brasnan. I hate Purple Brasnan. A bread delivery man in his mid-fifties who only wore shoes from TK Maxx you'd think he was a millionaire. He was a four foot tall upside down traffic cone with acne scars on his shoulders and swollen toes from years of injecting steroids into them he smelt like bleach cock at a walk in the gym because there's a little there's a little trophy beside the vending machines with his name on it he, he'd won a few bodybuilding competitions in his time and you could tell by the way he'd clench his arse cheeks that he thought he was better than you because of it he hated his arse as well it looked like a photograph of a roast chicken and now there he was, 
taken off his swimming goggles to witness my naked body. The bottom half of him was under the water, so he had wobbly stumps instead of legs. He squinted, and that made his head look like a bag of chips. And it, he wasn't one bit intimidated by my nudity. The shock, the shock must have given me a mickey like a belly button because he stared clean at it with disgust in his vinegary eyes. Then up at my noise cancelling headphones, then back down at my cock again. I could see his mouth moving. What the fuck are you doing, Jackie? I'm listening to cheat, as I said. The wrong answer again. I slid the headphones off to try to explain myself, but... I wasn't thinking straight, so I rested them around my neck like a collar. Bad move. Any chance of saving myself was gone as soon as I felt my face going red. Then I... Then I did the worst thing imaginable. I copped my two hands over my dinner like it was a penalty showdown. And Purple Brasnan, the little bastard, gets up out of the pool with his 2007 TK Maxx Armani flip-flops slapping on the tiles. He walks past me, no eye contact, and he whispers in this managerial tone. He says, Put on some shorts, Jackie. They do children's swimming classes in here. The bollocks... The bollocks thought I'd come into the pool with my float out to alpha male him and now he'd just alpha male me. He won. Pur- purple Brosnan won. I can't have Purple Brosnan thinking he alpha male me even though I'm not doing this alpha male shit no more but still he doesn't know that. As far as he's concerned he just won. Fuck the podcast now. I dropped the headphones on the pole side and barreled back into the changing rooms and made myself as nude as possible. I'd have got it all. I held my breath to inflate my chest. I walked with my legs parted like I'd shat myself. I had sex with the air in front of me so that my langer slapped against my thigh. I spread out my toes as far as they'd go. I launched my elbows out, pretending I was dragging the corpses of two dead horses behind me, demanding respect through all the skin on me. The room was chubby with undressed men. I imposed myself on them, but it was no use. Something had gone sour. Whatever way Purple Brosnan had cocked me in that swimming pool had changed my status. The weakness rose out of my pores and every man could taste it in the vapour. I'd been too emotional with my body. Kazi. Kazi was over by the hairdryers palming lavender oil into Pavel's delts. Neither of them even acknowledged how naked I was. I made that noise that you make after coming out of a steam room to let men know that the steam in the steam room was very steamy. Oh! Oh! Nothing. Ignored. Whole place stinking of lavender and bars. And then Kazi says, Kazi says, Where are your big headphones gone, Jackie? Are you not listening to cheetahs anymore? And Pavel with his darting eyes did a sharty chuckle, looking for allies. A smirk you wouldn't see on a ferret. He was testing the electricity to see if it was okay to jeer. And there was a coward silence. And then, Purple Brosnan, the mahogany bollocks, pushes his head out from a locker and pinches this wrinkly prick in his fingernails and says, Jackie's off banging cheetahs up the arse and then running around the swimming pool nude with a dirty bellend full of cheetah shit looking for a nine-year-old to sniff it. And all the men did these hungry laughs that grew louder against the ceramic of the walls. Even the bony fella with the cleft palate who has tits from playing golf 
No one even knew his name. He, he wasn't worth the name. And he was howling at me. I felt like the World Trade Center getting a slap off a plane and crumbling on Sky News. A softer part of me wanted to tell him the truth. That I'd been so distracted by a life-changing podcast about cheetahs that I'd walked into the swimming pool naked by accident. But you couldn't open up like that. No more than you could openly acknowledge the nudity hierarchy. Well, Corey Shunt spoke about this on the podcast though. This is what happens to the alpha wolf in captivity. They respect you, they fear you, they give you the first dibs and the barbells, the second you show weakness. They all turn on you at once. The alpha wolf is banished from the pack, forced to wander the perimeters alone and die beside the fence. Or cancel his gym membership. That's the beauty and cruelty of nature. But they were still laughing. Not the big loud laughs, but the the smaller bent over chuckles that sound like a nose getting blown. My eyesight became wobbly and my forehead hurt with rage. Laughing at Jackie Kinsler and the Jim Chandler rooms, eh? Laughing at Jackie Kinsler and the Jim Chandler rooms. Have they gotten me confused with a man who lets other men laugh at him? I kept my head stuck in the locker so they couldn't see any emotion out of me. To calm myself down... To calm myself down, I stared at the photograph of toes and my athlete's foot powder. They were slender toes, and I couldn't tell if it was a woman's toes or a small man's toes that had been shaved. And when I thought about shaving the hair off the knuckle of a toe, I felt my face getting less red and my jaw unclenching. I could have picked up the bottle, held it up for all to see, pointed at the toes and said to Purple Brazenin something like, Look at these gorgeous toes. They wouldn't put your big Chernobyl toes on this bottle of athlete's foot powder, you geriatric club-footed cunt. And then he would have been the one who was being laughed at, and I would have restored my status, but I didn't. Because I'm not doing this alpha wolf shit no more. I decided that in the mirror earlier. I have the Sigma Cheetah mindset now. I think before I act. The laughter ended, and the time had come for us to all hit the showers. Conversation turned to Aston Villa, and the actor Michael Douglas who got tonsil cancer from licking a fanny. No one asked for my input, because there was too much tension. They were all waiting for my response to Purple Brosnan. They were thinking, was Jackie just going to let him castrate him like that? Jackie Kinsler? Jackie who had trials for Everton, Jackie? Jackie Kinsler, who has his own gym locker that wasn't really mine but everyone knew it was mine. Was he really going to bow down to Purple Brasnan? I took out my big red Bermuda swimming shorts from my locker and slid them on over my nudity. Pavel suckled at his post-workout protein shake like it was a tit. Cosy threw a glance at me, the way you'd watch a car crash. His voice gone up into his throat like a child. Are you not coming into the showers, Jackie? We're all showering now. I am, I said. Did you not see me benching 120 kg? The Perrier were barely able to lift it off my neck. I'm stinking. Why would you think I'm not coming into the shower? Every man gawked at the white tropical flowers on my swimming shorts with terror and pity in their eyes. And I let him have that little moment, like a fucking cheetah in the long grass over a swarm of antelope. Purple Brosnan stood silent with his tanned prick out. 
They say actions be louder than words. Well, I'd a plan to fuck with the rules a bit. Get inside their heads. You see, you have to be a bit more protective of your nudity in the shower because showers are sexual. Be nude, but not as nude as the changing room. Let everyone see that you've got nothing to hide, but don't be swinging anything around. Nothing that might risk your wet skin touching another man's wet skin. You play it forward in the changing room. You defend in the showers. Arses to the wall, feet nailed to the tiles, chests out. You can't enjoy it. Washing needs to be functional. Make noises like the shower is attacking you. When the hot water hits the back of your shoulders, pull the wet over your front like a rucksack with your fists. Too much lather is weakness. Ideally, use water only and avoid shower gel. Let your skin resist the droplets and you look impenetrable. The no soap in the showers thing is bullshit. Soap is actually better than shower gel because you can hit someone with soap. But bare water is best. No turning away, stare through the nudity. Don't ever spend any great length of time washing your dick in case you get a spanty. Flaccid is leadership. Talk if you want, but if you do talk, make a solid point with your words. Shout! Don't let any man think you're talking just to distract yourself from looking at his shaft. And of course, the most important rule of all, don't ever wear swimming shorts. The showers smell like the inside of a hotel kettle. A perfectly square room full of tiles, a fucking shower like. Six shower heads and then a drain in the middle, which was no man's land. If there were more men than six men, then two men had to share, no touching, depending on the man. Jackie Kinslin never had to share a shower head with any man, you get the point. Now there were six of us in the shower. Kazi, Pavel, Golf Tits, some other fellow with freckles who thought he was above it all, he wasn't. And me, in my swimming shorts. A purple Brasnan was fashionably late, cause all of us knew that this shower would be his coronation. He was gonna pull some shit, some big alpha move. Those were the rules. After dressing me down in the pool, and then that joke in the locker room, and now me wearing swimming shorts, he had to take his crown. Under those shower heads was where he'd decapitate me, in front of witnesses to legitimise it. The warm water was teeming from the walls. Sounded like a leaky garage in a storm. Pavel was first to try and burst the tension, rubbing soap into his neck and choking himself. He yelped, my legs are fucked from them no deadlifts. Eat a banana after to replenish your glycogen stores, says Kazi. And then a thundery roar came in. We all know where Pavel wants to stick that banana. He wants to ram it up his Latvian jacksy. <laughs> no one laughed. It was Purple Brasnan gliding into the shower, barefoot, two inches shorter with the chest out and the chin up. I watched him on the sly. But with all due respect, he'd a body like stone. A little ball peen hammer of a man. He was streaky with that dark fake tan that bodybuilders wear. And the brown dripped off his swollen toes and dissolved into the water and made it rusty. I hated the bones of him. He made eye contact with no one and pulled out a small blue plastic disposable razor. Held it up with the grisly elbows above his forehead. And every cunt glanced at me for the split of a second and that was a solid move in fairness. Even I got a bit of a fright when I saw the razor. 
I've a competition in a month. You don't mind if I shave in here, he says. We're not allowed to shave in the shower for hygiene reasons, says Golf Tits. Be quiet, Golf Tits. Stay out of it. A purple asked again a bit quieter and directed at the real men. You don't mind if I shave, lads. I'm putting on a second coat of the tan after the shower and I need to clear away some hair. Go ahead, purple, says Cassie. Where are you competing? And purple goes. Over in Barcelona? No. We'd all assumed that purple wanted to shave his chest or legs. But before anyone could even take in his words, he faced the wall and very rapidly bent over. With one set of fingers, he tore apart his arse cheeks. And with the other, he used the razor to shave the curly auburn hairs that circled his hope. He dug into it. And one lad actually gasped. Golf tits flat out left. Purple Brosnan pointed his arsehole at every single man in the shower, holding the room hostage. They immediately turned their backs and washed themselves pure quickly, with anxious, uncomfortable fidgets. They hadn't the status to witness what he was doing to his anus. These were the advanced tactics of a veteran. He was in full control. Big alpha move. Oh, Barcelona, I'd say that's lovely this time of year, squealed Kazi into the wall like an excited woman. Purple Brosnan started screaming while he was shaving. Yeah, it's an over-fifties bodybuilding competition. I've a fair shot at gold or silver. Dorian Yates is on the adjudicating panel. I'll be cutting out carbs completely next week. Three chickens a day and a yard of broccoli. And then he pivoted his little half-shorn hope at me. I stared at his arse like it was a high court judge. I despised his undercarriage. A crinkly cyclops balloon not wrecked him. Tanned gloats divided by a big stupid long magnolia bars, ending in a pair of continental quilt balls and about nine grey pubes. What do you think, Jackie? His ring winked at me when he talked. Do you reckon I'll win a trophy in Barcelona? This was the barrel of the gun pointed at my temple. I'll give you Barcelona, I said, which didn't make any sense at all, but before I could even feel embarrassed about it, I was biting down on his left arse cheek. I was giving him Barcelona with my mouth, and then it made sense. I hadn't planned it. Nature did it. I latched onto his hole, my nostril in his ring and all. It smelled like a line of coke. I kept my swimming shorts on. I transcended status and floated to a higher spectrum of dominance. Jackie, Jackie, stop! They all started screaming, because they could hear my testosterone. I thought about starting a war. I thought about starting a podcast. I hung from the back of Purple Brosnan. I didn't draw blood, but I left a mark. Ah! He shouted. In that moment, I realized I wasn't the Alpha Wolf, and I wasn't the Sigma Cheetah either. I was that skin-covered dog from my dream whose mouth I want to fuck. A new tune there, guys, from Blind Boy Boat Club from his album Topographia Hibernica. A bit of an experimental song for RTE 2FM that was 40 minutes long. But I'm ready for it, guys. 576312, if you're ringing in, the traffic on the M50 is absolutely crazy. No. That was, uh, 
that was I'll Give You Barcelona, a short story from my book, right? If you like that, go and get the audiobook. I just, I'm going to do the outro and the bed of music from that story because it, it, it's quite nice. I didn't want to go back into the piano. And on the topic of art and this podcast, the theme of the podcast, you can engage with that story intertextually with the deeper themes. You can, you know, you can dig up the art if you like, or you can just smell the flower. You can just go, that was a funny story about one man biting another man's arse. Both approaches are valid. It's up to you. I'll catch you next week uh, with a short... I sound like a... I naturally now sound like a radio DJ because of how that... the music is. I'll catch you next week with a hot take. In the meantime, rub a dog, kiss a swan, tickle the ears of a kitten. All right, dog bless. <laughs>